Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, the show for business owners looking to acquire, scale, or exit a business. Before we get on with today's program, we just wanted to let you know that the Buy, Grow, Sell team have been working really hard to come up with more resources that add more value to your journey. This includes a range of webinars, tools, and other events, including an online summit where we get some of the industry's leading experts to come and share their insights. If you'd like to know more, go to buygrowsell.com forward slash events. Enjoy the show. The best business ideas are ones that solve relevant problems that a customer will easily understand. For my latest guest, Mark Jaynes, his greatest business idea came to him while he was sitting in his backyard with his neighbour complaining about pool maintenance. Connected Yard was born shortly after. And while it wasn't without its growing pains, Mark was able to positively disrupt the pool and hot tub industry. He introduced a subscription model into the business and grew the value to 20 times its initial investment. Then, when he went to source more funding, he ultimately found himself a buyer instead. From the various stages of funding to different deal structures, his episode will guide you through the nuances of starting, growing, and exiting your business. This is Mark Jaynes. Hey, Mark. Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for uh, making the time to come on the show. You're very welcome. Excited to be here. Yeah. Um, Mark, I know we're going to have a little chat about, you know, I know you built up Connected Yard and ultimately sold it um, and, and keen to unpack that part of your life. But maybe I could hand over to you and you could kick off, give us a little bit of your background and ultimately what led you to sort of getting involved as a co-founder of Connected Yard. Sure, by all means. Um, I mean, my, my journey starts at the age of 11, really. I formed my, own, my first company then. Um, it was actually recycled newspapers. So as a kid, I went around the estate um, picking up newspapers in my go-kart and collected them and put them in the garage and started stacking them up. And then I would sell them on to uh, a, a recycling company. And then I needed a second garage and then I needed a third garage. And then it grew and grew. And uh, my parents had to open a bank account. And, uh, um, you know, I became this obsession of collecting uh, old newspapers and recycling them. Um, and the lesson for me was it was great to find product market fit at the age of 11 and some demand and actually build something up. But the lesson to me wasn't about the building, it was about the exit. Because eventually the, the company was basically just hijacked by other more mature, proper companies from around the area who thought, what a great idea. And they, they took over the, the opportunity and recycling became a thing in, in the area I was in. And so um, you know, my little local business that earned me a little bit of money um, died, died on the vine and uh, became non-relevant anymore. So that was a really interesting part of a, a good life lesson at the age of 11. I then went on and uh, uh, um, started building companies for other people. And, uh, you know, as you build companies for other people, you, you kind of learn a lot. And you know, middle management, I always think that the hardest job is middle management because you're reporting to someone above you and you're working with people below you and you're stuck in that sandwich trying to make a change. Um, and it soon became obvious that what I was doing was building great businesses for other people, but maybe I should start building them for myself. Um, yeah. And I think, um, you know, I've always had entrepreneurial spirit from the early ages, as I explained. And what, 
But making that move out of corporate life or into startup land is tough. And my advice to anyone who may be listening today is, is that if you're struggling with that, as soon as you do it, you wish you did it 10 years before. Uh, and it's always the way. And I think, you know, a lot of things change. And for me, a lot of things change when I sold my first company. And you do things, things happen in, in most peculiar ways. The first thing happened to me was I lost a third of my friends. Um, a third of my, you know, because I think the the notion there was, um, well, you know, I'm in corporate life. Don't Mark's doing a very high risk thing. Uh, it'll never work, and it's best if I stay in corporate life and, and earn a salary. And then when you prove change that model and you turn it on the head, and you're one of the few because it's not many that do have a successful exit, then that gets people talking, and some people don't understand it, some people embrace it. Um, for me, I'm always about success for other people too. Um, there's not a jealous bone in my body. And so I thrive on that success for myself and for others. And so to help that with that now and what we're doing with our venture studio is really important to me. It's about part of that experience. It's part about seeing companies grow at scale and thrive, really. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm curious about, you know, and I've chatted to a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners over the years, I'm kind of curious about how people evolve into this world and space. You know, like you, you started a business at a young age. Uh, were your parents entrepreneurial or was there any kind of model that you followed there or did it just kind of come naturally? I think it's the complete opposite. I think my parents were not entrepreneurial and it's yeah. it's building success for yourself. Um, you know, I, I used to go around on a bread round at four in the morning. I used to work um, on the milk float with the milkman. You know, I wasn't given money, so I had money for myself. And therefore, when you okay. do that, um, you you find a way. And uh, if, if if you're inspired that way, um, I mean, I, I get your point. I mean, I remember the age of 16 um, being interviewed by someone from IBM who sat me down and said, so, Mark, what's your five-year plan? Now, you talk to a 16-year-old about a five-year plan without any kind of like modeling or preparation for that. You know, that's, that's, that's a big reach. That's a big ask. And so yeah, totally. I, 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 get, I get the um, the, the entrepreneurs that have seen success by by having mentors in their life that really helped them through that. But for me, it was, it was the other way around. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's interesting what motivates us to want to go out and do something different. And as you said, you know, you had friends who perceived what you were doing as risky. And, I mean, obviously that was probably for later businesses you know, I think as a kid, you probably you don't have much to lose, and why not? And it's an opportunity, and it's exciting, and stuff like that. But it's it is fascinating, uh, and I can relate to your story. I know as a kid, we we didn't have money growing up. It was you know it was yeah. there was a lot of struggle, and you know I I do recall a number of times as a kid looking around me and seeing how other people lived and thinking, do you know what? Like I actually want a better life. I want oh, to, yeah, not necessarily have. Um, like I've never been a oh I really want a Ferrari kind of guy. I, you know, Ferraris don't don't motivate me. But it was more sort of what I would deem as a quality of life. You know, this idea that they could travel or they could go see things. And I was always excited about what was over that next hill. And you know, unfortunately, right. if you want to see over that proverbial hill and that's on the other side of the world, well, <laughs> it, it takes resources to get there, right? So yeah, yeah so that's, that, so that's certainly always motivated. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, I think I think for for me, um, you unfortunately you get to a point though where you're uh, unemployable, 
because you <laughs> because you know I think what you're alluding to there is is about having having your own control and having your own destiny and and totally. deciding for yourself and so that's great but you get to a point where you can't then convert back <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i very much relate to that it's uh yeah there's to, to me in fact it's sort of a bit of a a running joke internally at exit advisory group out in our core business you know every, everybody identifies as a corporate skp you know, it's uh, and it's often bandied around that, you know, sometimes you've got to work in an environment so you know what you don't want for the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> so, so I know I know when I quit my last corporate job and I was, you know, it was a great role in a big US-based company and it was, you know, I was well paid and all that sort of good stuff. And when I tell people I quit and literally just packed up the family and went travelling around Asia for a year, they'd look at me like I'm insane, you know, just like... <laughs> And people would go, oh, geez. And about the third time I heard this, that you know, people saying to me, oh, geez, you're very brave, aren't you? And I'm like, why do people keep saying that? Like, to me, it's not bravery. It was just I didn't see that I had any other choice. I mentally couldn't keep doing what I was doing over there. Yeah. And I needed to do something completely different. And so it was just, to me, it was just the obvious step. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I take your point. I, I certainly couldn't go back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the way I go back now is with corporate innovation. I mean, it's nice working with large corporations that have a pain point and a problem area um, yeah. and you can support that and join the board and, and be part of that process but but to actually yeah. be there a cog in the wheel it, it, i think it's tough to get back go back to it yeah oh well, look i think the difference you're coming in there as a as a trusted advisor not a cog in the machine and you know you're not reporting to some mid-level manager or somebody who you know to be honest can have different agendas and motivations so yeah i did different sort of angle i guess that you're coming at it from but um but yeah anyway um so t tell us a little bit about connected yard what what was the business what did it do well before connected yard um i built a, a successful business which we sold to alcatel lucent nokia which brought me to the usa um and i think that really helped um position ourselves and myself especially in terms of understanding what it is to build companies in a more, much more mature way um, you know, when we built um, the UK company, the, the notion that you could get local funding out of the UK for international growth was was hard to get. Um, and, yeah. you know, the, and in the end, after growing um, uh, organically and building a, a sizable business, we ended up selling through um, Alcatel Lucent, now Nokia, who, who was a mature business that understood an exit strategy and understood you know, an earn out of two, two and a half years to actually grow the business internationally, which we successfully did. So that brought me across to the US and settled me here in Silicon Valley. And so Connected Yard, to answer your question, was really an opportunity where it was one of those days where I was literally sat in my backyard um, and we had a neighbor over and uh, we were complaining about pool techs and about swimming pools. And uh, we were saying, you know, there just had to be a better way of managing the pool. The pool tech would e either not turn up or you weren't sure you were getting value for money or you couldn't put the chemicals in yourself because you weren't sure you were going to turn your, your kid's hair green um, or what was going to happen. <laughs> and so it came from that practical realization that there was something that needed to happen to disrupt an industry. And what's more importantly, what I learned previously is that what you need to do is disrupt it in a positive way. Uh, negative disruption is is always more difficult. Um, it, it, it's more problematic, especially if you try to um, sort of 
bake yourself into an ecosystem and really get under the skin. And so we had to disrupt a pool industry in a positive manner and keep all the players happy. And so yeah. we, you know, sitting down and looking at that, you know, you have the pool techs. How do you how do you make sure they stay the heroes? How do you make sure that the the fathers of the households, the the husbands are the heroes and they're keeping their pools clean? How do you make sure the chemical companies are still selling their chemicals, et cetera, et cetera? How how does the retail not feel cannibalized by online? So that became an interesting problem point. Hmm. Interesting. And so uh, note that you co-founded. So talk to me a little bit about, so you partnered, how many people started the business with you? What, What did those sort of early days look like? Well, it was the two of us, um, and uh, you know, we basically sat down. And I've got a photograph still of the whiteboard where we wrote down everything we needed to do, and we went, well, "Okay, well, let's split it in half." You know, there yep. is this sense of, "Okay, well, you're going to be the CEO, and I'll be the COO, and yeah. we need to, you know, um, put hats on and, and decide for what we do." Obviously, you know, if you're working with a technical co-founder, then it's pretty obvious. You know, co-founder is going to build code build hardware, build software, and you're going to do everything else. Um, but in a situation where neither of you are a tech founder, then you have to carve it up and, and just build an organization around that. So what we found and what was really interesting, especially here in the Valley, was that um, you could employ some really incredible talent um, on a sweat equity basis so that you literally just got you know an incredible Google robotics engineer who would come in for two, three months on a small scope of work to, to build you know, uh, a little interface, a hardware software interface um, as, as an EE, electronic engineer, and to be able to build that that capability. And therefore, we couldn't afford cash because uh, cash was in short supply, like all startups. And therefore, you know, yep. be able to dole out um, small amounts of sweat equity to these amazing people in a, in a, in a really sort of um, fast-paced, um, exciting environment like the Valley is. And um, was 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 really the fundamental building blocks to begin the business. Yeah, that, that's. I, I'd love to pick on that a little bit if I could, because you, I think you've sort of started wandering into an area that I certainly see a lot of confusion in the market around, and that is how much equity do you actually give somebody? Yeah. Um, you know, in a in a startup, it's like, well, I mean, how do we even value this thing or you know, how do we offer something that's that's attractive enough for this person to come on board, but we're not giving away everything? And <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Do you have an approach to that? Oh, totally. I mean, we put two hundred odd companies have been through some of our long online learning materials now, and uh, you get to see a, a bunch of those, and you start to to see a pattern forming. And what's really interesting is is that that pattern is very much a single subject matter expert with a great idea, who starts to to put this together and start to to build a plan and execute on that and, and starts to think about can you use no code or, you know bubble io or something to actually build a minimal viable product and then suddenly he needs someone else to come and join the business maybe he's not very good at sales maybe he's not good at other technical implementation and that so that second sort of co-founder as you say comes on board it's it's a really difficult position because if somebody like i was in my backyard talking about a problem point sits down with with a co-founder then you equal your equal 50 50 or 45 percent each and 10 percent to an option pool um but once you get to the point of a minimal viable product and it's got some value then it becomes difficult to bring on people and i think this is what you might be alluding to what we see quite often is is that um, um, founders 
end up promising the world. And again, unfortunately, we see that Australian companies where they'll actually, it won't be a, a four-year vest with a one-year initial cliff um, for all people, including the founders. It'll be well, set up the company and we'll go 50-50 each and you just own the shares. And then as soon as that starts growing and you start bringing on investment money, and if one person's leave and you're left with this cannibalized um, cap table, which is diff- really yep. difficult to then sell into the VC community. Um, so, yeah. so my advice really to, to, short, to, to summarize that is that either start really early and find yourself as a complementary subject matter expert and go 50-50 from the beginning and ideate from there up or build the company by yourself using small amounts of sweat equity to build the business around you. And then once you get to the point where you think you need a head of engineering, a head of sales or someone senior in the business, but you still can't afford to bring them on salary, then consider actually doing the sweat equity thing, but just paying them um, as a multiple on their salary earnings. So if you value the company at 2 million, you divide it by, you know, um, um, their, their, their cost per hour and you work out what that percentage should be. What it normally always equates to is that 5% mark, that golden 5%, where it's yeah. where it's really, you know, you're looking at bringing on somebody five years, vesting over four years, sorry, 5% investing over four years. Um, and yep. then if it's somebody really incredibly talented, like a CTO who, who's joining you earlier, then you can put more equity into that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And and just I guess for those who may be a little bit new to some of this terminology, can you just sure. explain what you mean by by vesting and how that would work? Yeah, of course, by all means. Um, one of the most important things about any company is that there's um, skin in the game for everyone involved. And what I mean by by skin in the game is that um, you know you don't own the business one hundred percent. And the investment comes along, you could just walk away from it and and and, and leave it leave it empty an empty shell. You've got to allow the business to grow, as, um, and you've got to grow with it. You've got to earn your right to own the business over that time. So it's very common for for, for co-founders starting a new business, set up a Delaware C, ten million shares, um, four and a half million shares each, ten million and one million sat in in an option pool for for staff over time. But the vesting is that four years where you earn the rights of the shares and they, they unlock themselves over that period. Um, and so, and you would normally have a one year cliff because sometimes it doesn't work out too well in the first year. <laughs> so you yes. don't be giving yeah. away big lumps of money. Uh, it's not working out. So you would normally have a one year cliff where you work for a year. And if it's not, if you walk away, you get nothing. Um, but if you're yep. really seeing an opportunity grow and you're getting under the skin and building it and showing value, uh, as a team, then you you keep your shares and you start then um, maturing them on a quarterly basis after that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for explaining that. I think anybody who comes from the corporate space, and I said, no, I know I was in that situation of actually getting shares allocated on a regular basis. You know, they're used to this idea of vesting, but it's I think for for those in more in pri- in the private sort of space, it's you know I, I see a lot of people coming even to us saying. Hey, we're thinking about an employee share program, and you know I've heard that this can be really good for retention. You know, and that's really the depth of their knowledge. Where do we start? <laughs> well, actually, geez, there's a thousand different ways you could slice and dice that. So you know, obviously, understanding what they're trying to achieve and where do they think they're going to go. And in fact, I, I actually had a meeting with a couple of guys yesterday who were saying to them, like, you've spent a lot of time talking about getting this program done and all that, and that's really exciting and great. 
but you keep saying that this is the retention piece for you. And I said, I just would caution you not to fall into this trap that once you've got an employee, an employee share program, that retention is a tick box thing. It's done now. Oh, I don't need to think not. about culture yeah. and environment and <laughs> That's all that stuff. That's that's the, and when you're really, really transitioning there is, is from a, a sweat equity, which is normally, you know, common shares um, um, into an option pool, which are an option to purchase. And those options to purchase can, can be worthless, um, you know, because yeah. you depends on what the strike price is to begin with. You know, you have an option to buy it for a dollar, but maybe it's only you'll ever sell for a dollar fifty. You know, you're hoping it's going yeah. to sell for a hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, uh, and the whole reason for doing that is for tax efficiency, et cetera. But those options alone never keep and retain staff. It, as you say, it's that culture, it's the um, ability to grow, um, and it's the ability for the people to see change. If you look at Connected Yard, what we did there, that culture was really, really um, well managed by my co-founder, who um, really um, baked a sense of um, teamwork um, and, uh, and, and an ability for everyone to, to join the business. When we when we say to join the business and you're looking at shares, that's another key thing. Is are you coming to a company and you've got two mortgages, you know, six kids, and you need ninety eight percent of your is cash, and you, you're you know giving a token share ownership, or are you yeah. you know single and living at home? Um, you know, these are some examples, of course, just extreme examples, and you can afford to gamble fifty percent of your salary, your total on on an equity position. And so it's always good to find companies that if you want to work for, or if you're a company looking to bring people on board, really working to those strengths of those individuals and making sure that you're that you can you, you can support them that way. Yeah, yeah. Look, that's a really great point, and I, I, um, the the use of the word gamble is you know, and and fundamentally, <laughs> there's risk, right? There's risk, particularly in early stage businesses, and I, yeah. you know, it's it. I I do agree with you. It's it's people need to. Yes, people need to be rewarded. And, and here I'm going to steal a quote here from Dan Pink, who I think um, describes this really well in one of his TED Talks, but he, he sort of says money's a motivator, but, but only to a point. Like once people are actually earning enough money to take money off the table as a day-to-day issue for them, you know, I mean, sure, they may want more, but they're not stressed about money anymore. Their focus and motivation is is massively dependent on other things, you know, purpose and autonomy and mastery and all this sort of other stuff. And so I I always took that away when I start thinking about building our own teams that, you know, I'm much more talking about purpose and and the the really deep intrinsic motivators and, and money sort of comes down to that. Well, look, if we fit with all that other stuff, like what do we need to do to tick the box of money, right? Like it's <laughs> um, yeah. because you can't. You can't train people on that other stuff, right? <laughs> no, and that's also a really good point from from a vet, from a venture perspective as well, because you know um, venture capitalists can be hard and and, and 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 it could be difficult. But at the same time, they understand the skin in the game, as I was explaining earlier. And therefore, sometimes you've got to take you've got to take some cash out of it. And what we often see is is a startup founders who sweat equity to begin with. They gamble their mortgage on their on their on their idea. They you know they keep promising their partners that things are going to get better, and they build a business and you know they take pay themselves a minimum salary and then get to a point where it's a growth stage. Actually, there's no, there's nothing wrong with asking a VC to put some cash in their back pocket as well. And so you yeah, know, taking ten million on on a, on a Series A, why can't a million go to 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 to, to that and actually 
allow the founders to pay off mortgages, et cetera, to get onto the next part of the line. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Take once again, take the money issue off the table a little bit, right? And and, and I agree with that. I think I've seen it myself in terms of, you know, I, I actually need to make my partner happy. I need to reconcile the sacrifice that's been made as a family. <laughs> and <laughs> so yeah, it's the internal totally culture that. again. It's, it's the internal culture again. Yeah, yeah. So so you started Connected Yard with a mate. Um, talk me through the first couple of years. You know, I think we've all, I've done a few startups myself, so I've, I've done that really running really, really hard and pouring a lot of effort and energy into the business and not having any income. And But what, what did your kind of first couple of years look like? I think for us, um, what's really important is to understand is that we were tackling a hard problem. And with that came hardware. Uh, and with that came um, direct-to-consumer. And, you know, the world's learned a lot about hardware and direct-to-consumer over the last five, seven years. Um, and you know, we're right, right in the middle of that whole whole point. In fact, we're just there before the bang. Um, and so, you know, if, if you're trying to build hardware, you're trying to build software, you're trying to build an ecosystem for chemical delivery, a service a network and building all these kind of capabilities around it, you'd need funding for that. Um, but more importantly is actually understanding how the funding should come in because as, as much as you you know you may have great talent and great expertise from a previous um, startups and, and confidence from the VCs that you can do it again, it's all down to that ability for that company to get product market fit, get traction and scale. Um, obviously, yeah. they're not looking like a bank. They don't want a completely de-risk opportunity, but they want to de-risk as much as they can in the available time they have to go through and review your, your pitch deck. So for us, what we did is we we went for a pre-seed round, um, which was marketing only. It was two hundred thousand dollars, and that was to basically prove to them, proved that the market was there and demand there for the product. So we used every single yep. penny of that on building an incredible website and then um, um, pre-selling the product. Yep. So, right. so just to clarify, my understanding here, so. Had you, you had you built a prototype? Did you know that the hardware side of things would, in principle, work and all the rest of it? Like, where, where were you at in that side of things? Um, concept stage. Um, yeah. I mean, yes, of okay. course, in the background, we were building an amazing-looking product because we use that for the filming, for the marketing. You know, we had an understanding of BLE and transmission and how we're going to take the data from the, for the floating device in the pool and relay it to the cloud. We had an understanding of what the website should do and how the app should work with some visuals of it. So, yes, you know, the principle was there. Um, and so there was a lot of work in the background in sweat equity point of view, actually building prototypes. And those early prototypes obviously are scary looking things and don't work well. And <laughs> I think the first one was was literally a, a, a piece of floating foam with, with a with, with a with a plastic tray in the middle with a, with a, a raspberry pie or something stuck in the middle, you know. <laughs> yeah, totally right. Well, you've got to start somewhere. Yeah, I get that. Exactly. <laughs> but, but what was interesting there is that um, what we're trying to prove is demand, and therefore, and with that demand, we could then go for a series, um, seed series and, and, and build from there and build a team around us. And what we didn't expel, I think we expected it, but we weren't sure what would happen, is that we, you know, we pre-sold a million dollars worth of product. Wow, nice. Um, and the problem with that is, is it's a nice problem to have, but then you've got to deliver on that. Yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> we we executed on our, on our KPIs. You know, we we um, we pre-sold the product, and we proved there was a market. We then went to back to our investors and to new investors, 
to say, well, here it is. This is the opportunity. We now need seed money. That seed money yep. came fairly easily, and it came from the valley here. And it was um, it was from really great VCs that really understood the problem, especially from the hardware space. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, of course, you know that those pre-sales are aging, and they're sat there, and your consumers need to be told that the money's been well spent, and you will get this product eventually. Um, and for us, you know, building prototypes and having something that's electronic that floats in water that can that can bubble around in a hot tub as well, 110 degrees, and can transmit data <laughs> and, can, and can analyze chemicals is it was a tough ask. So the time that scale, is a very tough challenge. <laughs> so the time scale for um, delivering that product was elongated. You know, it, it grew, and there with that came that demand from consumers. And so what we found is that that initial marketing drive, which was, was direct to consumer focused brand proposition of you know um, of, of of selling this to consumers, became a rescue mission with social media to put out the fires. We you know where it's like, will I ever get this product? I think it's a rip off. You guys are scamming me. Oh. You know, yeah. and you learn fast. You learn hard. You learn about being transparent, being honest showing the inner workings of the company, tell them what's going on, um, offering a refund if needs be, and just helping them through the journey. And then in the background, you know, um, working really hard to deliver a product you, you can actually get to market. Yeah, yeah. That's a really interesting insight there, that, that sort of delicate balance between, you know, building and iterating and still trying to engage customers and prove traction. <laughs> and, oh, man, it's... That's an interesting one. I've 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 seen a number of um, you know, pitches and you know angel investor presentations over the years and everything else. I'm curious, you mentioned your first raise was was all marketing, and I can see why that was a logical choice. Um, but I, I also see a, a friction there. You know, certainly as a guy sitting in the crowd and you know people pitching me, I've, I've thought so many people. I think say I've got a great idea. Here's the potential size of the market. Everybody's talking hockey sticks. You know, you're sort of just waiting for the hockey stick. How steep is the stick, you know? And so maybe after the fifth presentation, you're becoming a little bit cynical. But um, I, I do see a lot of startups out there who that whole sales, marketing and sales part of their model is perhaps not as well developed in thinking as the actual product itself, right? They know, they know they can do some good tech stuff here, but how do we actually get clients to come in yeah. and pay us? And like I, I, I'm thinking of a guy, particularly at the moment, that that he was asking for a couple of million bucks. He goes, look, we're just going to go, we're gonna, this is all marketing, we're going to go and get clients on board. And I just thought, oh, like you've lost me here. Like like if you're just going to advertise or whatever, like and maybe that will work. B2C is a little bit different as well. Um, but I just thought, geez, that just doesn't sound like a really clear, concise, like you know where your customers are and how Absolutely. you will engage them. Yeah. You yeah. know, so I just, yeah. I don't know. I mean, do you see much of that? I mean, does, do, do I think a lot of companies fail in that whole marketing sales piece, you know, but oh, it's totally, what, totally what it's, Well, I think the first thing is, is that as a founder, you are a salesman. And if you're not a salesman, you've got to learn to be a salesman. And the word founder-led sales has to be drummed into your head and you've got to write it on your forehead and look at it in the mirror every morning and you clean your teeth. Because without that, a lot of things can't happen. First of all, there's no feedback loop in terms of is the product really being 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 um, being accepted in the marketplace. 
Secondly, there's a lack of confidence from your investors that you can actually execute on this one. And thirdly, you have to do that. You have to have sales as the main motivator in any organization because at the end of the day, that's what it's going to deliver on. And quite often, it's yep. been valued on an EBITDA or some kind of multiple to actually exit it. So yep. um, founder-led sales is really vital and, and that can be a struggle sometimes. We do see that. And, and it's, it's something that it's, it's got to be learned. It's something that's got to, um, founders have got to get confidence in. And more importantly, it's something you can't, can't let go. Even when you're a stage where Maybe you've been a founder-led sales um, um, kind of founder in Australia to start with or a different country and you've come to the US and you go, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have a head of sales and they can just run themselves in the US and they can scale it. It doesn't work that way. You're back to 101 um, mentality where you really need to start from the beginning again and, 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 and use founder-led sales to actually investigate the opportunity, the different customer personas, the different type of opportunities over here and scale uh, and scale and start again. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that insight there because <laughs> I certainly, um, yeah, I mean, look, we, we're a number of businesses over the years and I think every time we sort of iterate or we start driving either a new product or a different brand to do some stuff, I and, and I literally said this last week to somebody, I feel like I'm back in startup mode on <laughs> <And so laughs> certain things. You know, it's like, oh, man. <laughs> and, and as you know better than anybody, you know, startups, are, they're hard. It's, you know, if it was easy, everyone would do it and uh, it, it probably wouldn't be worth as much, but it's um, yeah, it's a challenging one. Um, can I change gear here? I'm, I'm cognizant of your time here, but it's, um, yeah, I know you started, you know, co-founded Connected Yard in 2014. Uh, talk to me about the sort of back end, you know, what what year did you sell and, and at what point did you guys start thinking about your actual exit? That's a really good question. I mean, you get to a point where, you know, you prove it's all about KPI growth and proving you can use the money wisely and deliver on those promises to your investment community, to your customer base, to your to your internal team, um, and keeping a great culture, both externally and internally, you know, reducing your brand damage and building something that you know you can execute on and, and, and knock out of the park. Yes, all of those things. You get to a point where that growth, you've you know, we got to five, 10,000 unit sales, and then you enter that growth stage. How are you going to then maximize that growth stage? Do you go for a Series B um, to really, you know, um, put, the, put the pedal to the metal and, and, and go for it? Um, or, or, or are you looking for an exit? And for us, we investigated a, a, a Series B growth round. And what we found is that um, the interest we, were, um, we got was, was to be acquired rather than, than, than to invest. Um, gotcha. And so it became difficult. It became difficult knowing when to let go of the baby and when to, to let go for your investors as well. You know, um, um, will this thing implode eventually? Because, like any new marketplace, um, competitors come along. Um, you know, are you going to still um, have your moats and your white space around you to defend that off? Um, are you still running ahead of the pack and, and delivering upon that? Um, or do you, you get to a point where you need to? to you know um, look at an, an exit that maybe you know um, helps you gain the momentum so for my first company yeah. in the uk that exit was with a major organization that took the software and implemented it to every telco around the world you know that was our execution yep. plan on the back of that we had a you know great multiple exit and that worked out very well um, for the next one it was either taking in, uh, more investment money and who would be the lead who yep. would want to lead that investment um, or would it be um, actually um, corporate funded and, and an exit that way? So that's what we did. You know, we, we took an exit through uh, 
through a, a major um, pool manufacturer um, to actually um, sell the business out over two years um, based on an EBITDA um, earnout opportunity and an exit that way. Yeah, interesting. Really interesting. Um, so I get that. I get the trade sale part. I think that makes an enormous amount of sense too. Um, when you structured the deal, I, I mean, I typically find all the deals I've been involved in that you know, there's really a couple of buckets that most people get their consideration. You know, cash up front. There's a deferred component, but not at risk. You know, otherwise called vendor finance. There's an earnout, clearly deferred and at risk. Sometimes people get shares in a buying company, but um, I find a lot of certainly my clients in the past aren't looking at that as an option. But can, did you get a break up into those different buckets? Like what, what did the sort of, without going into anything that might be sensitive, but what did the sort of deal look like? Well, let me just talk in more general terms um, about this. Yeah. I think one of the key things here is that, um, uh, I mean, f- for my first deal, there was cash up front um, and the rest was earned out over a period of time. Um, you know, yep. For this, this the second deal, it was very different to that. Every deal is different. And it's all about what you yeah. want out of the opportunity. And that's the way I'd really answer this by saying, um, first of all, can you trust the earnout? Do you think you can yes. put your eggs in one basket and believe that the um, the acquirer would really deliver upon their promise and give you the team that they say for expansion and, and and be able to achieve that? You know, be very careful with those kind of things. Um, the second thing is around, um, um, you know, if you if you take, give too much cash up front, then there's no motivation for this for the founders to stay with the business. So it's the opposite side for the acquirer, um, especially if there's yeah. a long handover period. You see, really, the pendulum swings so much. I mean, here um, in the Valley, um, you see a lot of acquisitions where the companies are bought. There's a three-month handover. It's all cash up front, and the businesses are then just ripped apart, and the components yep. just um, absorbed into the larger entity, and, and it moves on from there. So really, you've got to decide on, on what you want and what the acquirer wants. Um, is it just literally an acquisition, um, break up, and move on? Um, uh, are you t- are you or are you too personally invested in the in the problem? I mean, are you running a, a company that actually you want a two year acquisition? You want to, you want to be a senior part of that team moving forward because you're inspired by the mission and the goals, and you want to stay with it. Um, and all that really plays into it, and that's why it's really important to to understand the motivation behind these deals. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. You know, I think coming back to sort of almost full circle on what we were saying before, you know, money's important, but only to a point, right? It's, you know, how, how important is the the next stage of evolution of the business and the, what, what's your, you know, does, is legacy important, right, to you at all? Um, yeah. And it's funny because I've had clients at one end who say, I don't care, it's just an asset. Like, like yes, I feel, um, I have feelings toward about my business because I've spent so much time in it, but ultimately it's an asset and when they buy it, they can do whatever they want. And, on the other end of the spectrum, I had a client once who took the lowest of three offers because they said, these guys get it. They get my vision. They get my strategy. And I believe they will continue to build it in a way that I believe is appropriate. Yeah. And, um, and you know, and, and there is no right or wrong with this stuff, right? It's, I think there's probably a, f- a few very serious internal kind of looking and internal conversations for, for a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners to sort of answer some of those questions. Absolutely right. I think you need to go into that with the same kind of methodology when you first start, because every day is a burn day. Every day is important, not only for your company's growth and you know um, the loss of of um, of that um, 
that the money you have in the bank to, to execute on, but also it's another lost day for you in terms of what you could be doing. And we could often see yes. this where I, I'll, I'll talk to a founding uh, a founder and they'll they'll say, well, this is the mission, this is what we're doing. So this sounds great, but it sounds like a lifestyle business. Yep. And they say, well, yeah, it is. This is what I want to do. So, well, how are you ever going to attract investors? And how are you ever going to look for an acquisition? You know, and, and those two sometimes are, are, are a knife edge in terms of deciding what you want to do with a business. You know, we, we, we yeah. recently had a had a, a, an amazing lady who came into, in, into the studio and, and she was looking at this. And what she realized is she could build a, an amazing um, uh, business around um, corporations and enterprise that had nothing to do with her vision, but the money she made on the corporations and enterprise, she could use to execute on her vision. She gave her the best, best of both worlds. Yeah, interesting. Really interesting. I, I, I think the takeaway here um, for our listeners is that you know, your point you made before, every deal is different. And and even though, you know, deals might follow a similar pathway with some similar kind of typical milestones that need to be cleared, I mean, your business, the people within it, the buyers themselves, they're all different people with different perspectives, different views. Even the timing in the market and what's going on around you is going to be different. So it's, um, it's not that sort of thing that you can just... <laughs> Take a take a basic run sheet of what's happened in the past with somebody else and just apply it, you know, consistently to to your, your business. Exactly. Um, and, yeah. and 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 two other points I'd make on that very quickly is number one, you know, make sure you've got a good measure of your, of the VCs that are backing you and what their motivations are as well, and making sure that you have a clear communication um, along the way with your VCs about how you want to execute and how, on what their what their return is and when they expect to return. So often we see it happen where that conversation happens far too late, and uh, the founders have lost um, lost um, controlling interest. The VCs are pushing them for a, a, a localized IPO exit, and they, they, the you know, the VCs will get out, take their preference shares, and 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 make a multiple, leaving you with a shell of a business afterwards. And then what do you do with it? And so having clear communications with everyone in in the value chain, the stakeholders here is really important, especially with your team uh, internally as well, of course. Yeah, yeah, great advice. Um, Mark, so you, you got out of Connected Yard. You've, you've obviously, um, you know, it's all a relative thing, but you've done well in life with all this sort of stuff. What, what are you doing these days? How do you, how do you spend your time and, and who are the sort of people you work with? That's a great question. We, um, I think three years ago, um, after finishing with the connected yard and uh, looking at you know next things to do, it was do I roll the dice again um, on a startup and uh, do I have the stamina for it? Well, the answer is yes. I think every day I get up and I'm you know just driven. Don't don't understand the word no 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 horizons. Just keep going and going. But at the same time, is that the best use of my time? And um, yeah. after a lot of advice from friends um, and family and uh, colleagues in the industry. The opportunity to set up a venture studio was just too much to turn down. And so what we've done yep. now is we've created um, an incredible sort of unique venture studio in that, first of all, we're not an accelerator. If people get confused with accelerators and that three-month cookie cutter sort of going through a program. We're a kind of yep. bespoke um, studio where we handpick companies to we work alongside with for small amounts of sweat equity to actually be co-founders co -founders, uh, as a service almost to help them with a yeah. problem and, and, and to grow it from there. 
At the same time, we still idea on our own startup ideas, so we still haven't lost that edge. We can still um, come up with great ideas ourselves and build teams um, and, and yeah. execute on that. Um, and then thirdly, working with government entities around the world um, to help them um, um, support the startups in those countries to basically um, be able to launch here and grow. Quite often you see, we call it um, bouncing off the atmosphere where you the companies, they think they can, they can come into the USA, but they quickly find that they bounce back and they don't know why. They may have spent a lot of money and didn't quite understand why they couldn't scale. And so we, we get a lot of satisfaction out of that, especially out of UK um, businesses because of my background. My co-founder's background is Australian, so Australian businesses, and now from other countries as well. Yeah, awesome. Oh, man, that sounds fantastic, and it sounds like a, a great use of your experience and skills and, you know, adding a lot of value to, to your clients. So um, I do have one more question um, before we wrap <laughs> up, and, <laughs> um, and and really it's, it's something I'm, I'm curious about with all of the sort of entrepreneurs that I get to speak to is really how you personally define success. Um, and, and perhaps I can leave that sitting out there for a moment and, and get you to answer in a moment and, you know, before you do answer it, are, are you okay for people to reach out and connect with you? Like how do people find you? You know, if somebody's got a burning issue, what's, what's the approach? Sure. Um, like we found on LinkedIn, uh, no problem at all. Cool. LinkedIn's um, a go. So we'll put that, um, we'll put your, your, a link to your profile in the, yeah, in the show notes here. Find me through LinkedIn. Um, and, and. Yeah, cool. And I always like to say here, if people are going to reach out to Mark, please don't just send him a connection request. Just like, please, if you're maybe going to connect, at least put a note, let him know that you heard him on the podcast, <laughs> that, you know, give, give him a little bit of context so it's not some random kind of, um, you know, social media thing. But um, anyway, um, we'll include all those notes, Mark. Um, to finish off, you know, do, how do you view success personally? So let me answer that in a quite an interesting way for you because it's not about the money, it's not about the success, it's about what you deliver to your community around you and, and how you've basically made the world a slightly better place. And I say that even when I was working for companies, I mean, I, I've got this story which I say to so many people where I had a young uh, lady who joined um, my production company um, as a runner, you know, and uh, she joined the business and she grew in the business. And one day she left the business and became a successful national um, wildlife uh, producer. And she's now going around the world and delivering on incredible story, you know, um, documentary stories and, and, and got a hugely successful life. I've had other people nice. turn, come to me and say after, to, after working for a while, hey, I'm leaving. And to me, that's not, oh, no, where are you leaving? I can't, I can't bear you know, to, to see you go. It's great, you know, you, you've got to move on to something better and bigger. And so yep. that, that uh, internal culture is a major part of it, is, is how can you bring on people in your life that can, can grow and mature and then go on to, to do great things for themselves. For me personally, that, that's a great motivator for me. Obviously, being successful and, and paying the bills and be able to, you know, keep the dog fed is important as well. Um, um, but I think, but I, I do think um, one of one of the most important parts is seeing other people's success and making sure that uh, you you can make that difference on a day to day basis. Yeah, love it, love it. It's uh, you know, and and a great place to finish off here. You know, we've mentioned it a few times through this discussion, but 
money's a motivator, but only to a point. And uh, <laughs> after that, I think it's, you know, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, you know, that having an impact and um, knowing that you're contributing in a positive way to other people's lives tends to be a lot more fulfilling. So, um, Mark, thanks again. I, I really appreciate you giving us your time. You've been very gracious and, um, you know, appreciate you sharing your story with us. Not at all. Nice to meet you. Thank you very much for your time. Cheers. Um, thank you all for listening to another episode of the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. I uh, hope you join us again next week. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Wherever you are on your business journey, it's worth understanding what is driving value into your business and what could be holding you back. For more information, speak to the team at Exit Advisory Group by going to exitadvisory.com.au or send an email to ask at exitadvisory.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. Thank <laughs> you.